my art history experience was really pretty by the book. It didn't really have a whole lot of contemporary art. Seeing Jillian Waring's work, it was kind of like, oh, you can you can be funny and you can have pop music and you can dance and you can, you know, have fun and, and act like an idiot in front of the camera. It was like merging theater and and music and all the things that I loved into art, but it wasn't this collaborative effort like music and theater are. It was a, a kind of singular effort that she was doing, and that really that really spoke to me. It felt like something that I could do and, and, and that I wanted to do. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 111th episode, David Pollitzer comes on and speaks with me about his work that includes a variety of photo, video, multimedia performance, and all sorts of interesting stuff. You can check out his website, Davidology. Again, it's a great way to follow along with this interview. We also talk about his exhibition that's opening this Saturday, May 10th, at Art Space in New Haven, Connecticut. Just a reminder that Studio Break is a blog and podcast. We feature a variety of different artists that come on and speak with me about their work. Each of them have interviews and images of their work as well as links to their website. So please check out all of our archives. You can do that by looking on the left. You see the archive button. You go month by month. Check out all the great podcasts and artists that you've missed. You can also go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast there. Again, always something to listen to while you're working in the studio. Just a reminder that it is that time for our 2014 competition. The deadline is approaching May 31st, so if you're an artist and are looking to get some exposure and maybe a solo exhibition, please check out the competition rules on studiobreak.com. Once again, we're going to be having nine different artists, three from three different categories. That's BA, BFA, MA, MFA, and professional artists. We're going to be featuring them on Studio Break with these lengthy interviews as well as images of their work. So please consider applying for that. This year, we are going to be hooking up artists with some solo exhibitions. So three artists will be getting a solo exhibition, one at Jan Brandt Gallery, one at the Peoria Art Guild, and one at Demo Project. So we're very excited about that. Our juror, of course, this year is Richard Holland from the Bad at Sports podcast out of Chicago and with contributors from all over the world covering contemporary art. So it's a lot of great exposure. So please apply. Lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. You can follow our Tumblr page, studio-break.tumblr. And, of course, we are on Facebook, so please like our page there. And you can also go to the iTunes store and subscribe to the podcast. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other ones, you can always do that. All right, here is our episode with David. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm really happy to be joined this morning by David Pollitzer. How are you? Good. I'm great. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's nice to kind of finally get this scheduled. I know that we've had a little bit of issues. It's funny I say that all the time, so i got to stop saying that, but <laughs> <laughs> happy to have you on. You know, so we, we've been talking a little bit about, about your work, and, you know, again, I, I think it's just a lot of fun kind of getting into the world. So I want to jump right in and, and just uh, ask you some basic stuff, like where you're from and, and where you grew up. I'm from Columbia, Maryland, and that is considered a suburb of both Baltimore and Washington, and it's a planned community. I mention it because I think it was pretty significant in you know, growing up. It was uh, designed so that the neighborhoods would be mixed, you know, so that there wouldn't be a, a wealthy side of town and a poor side of town, and so that there wouldn't be a good school and a bad school in a kind of the lowest common denominator sense of the words. It was, you know, this kind of 60s idealistic dream where uh, low-income housing is literally right next to middle-income housing. It's right next to the bigger homes. And I, I feel like that. I'm not sure I have a, a, a you know an articulate way of summarizing the effect that it had on on me. But just going to college and meeting other people who didn't grow up in that same kind of multicultural environment, I know that it I know that it affected the way that I 
look at the world and think of other people. That's very interesting, you know, and I think something that, you know, especially in the video works, it makes me think of immediately because that kind of inner dialogue seems like it's, you know, something that's always there too. Yeah. <laughs> I can, oh, I can relate. That's why I'm saying it. You know, that's maybe that, maybe that's one of the things that, like I was saying before, it makes it so accessible. Were you involved in like arts or were you involved in sports or reading or, or what, what kind of stuff did you like to do? Um, I was involved in most things except for sports. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was like, I did, student government and music and um and art and theater to the point where you know the the theater teacher was telling me that I shouldn't do art because I was not spending enough time learning my lines and the art teacher was telling me I shouldn't do theater because I was you know wasn't spending enough time with my sculpture and of course my I still have dreams about my my um band teacher <laughs> i was in the marching band which i'm i'm proud of i really i look I, I love being in the marching band it was it was a lot of fun so yeah yeah i was definitely in the arts i was also in um you know rock bands i was in a ska band i played trumpet in a ska band and messed around in in um with guitar my friend's basement we you know played like Nirvana. <laughs> well, one thing that I'm curious about that too, and you know, we talked a little bit before this about teaching and that too. I mean, as as someone that's trying to figure out their way in the world, did you just kind of just just say like, do it? Let's, I'll, you know, I can't can't play the trumpet yet, but I'm just gonna figure it out. Or I mean, was there like kind of like a, a an adventurous kind of component where you just wanted to just do stuff? Because there's a lot of anxiety about whether or not you know you do it well. You know, everybody wants to kind of qualify it like that immediately. No, yeah, I've always had that anxiety. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a definitely a, a, at my core, you know, wanting to do things well, and that's probably why I don't play music anymore. Is because I, I didn't think I did it well enough. The thing that I really loved about playing music was playing with other people, and I wasn't into the practicing in my room by myself thing. And uh, I just didn't have the discipline for that. Did you kind of go to college with the the split in theater and art then, or or how did that how did that come about, and what was that all about? I went into college thinking that I was going to study art or psychology, and I thought that that would be a really great marriage. And I also knew that I wanted to work in the theater, kind of behind the scenes. I, I wasn't really. I didn't want to be on stage. I wanted to be behind the scenes. Took Psych 101 and the memorizing of the parts of the brain was enough to <laughs> make it so that it didn't take Psych 102 or 202 or whatever it was. Um, it was just too too much memorization, too boring, too clinical. I probably would have liked it if I kept up with it into the, the more meaty stuff. But uh, the, uh, art really was more fun. I took this this drawing one course that was just transformative. This this guy, Jeff Elgin, you know, this hippie guy at, at college who would have us sit in a circle and um, he would play Peter Gabriel and all this great music and to the talking heads and we would draw on our own paper and then get up and walk to the next person's work and draw on their page and then get up and walk. And it was a really kind of, it just opened a lot of doors. It really opened up what art could be for me in a lot of ways. Um, it wasn't all about making things look like things, you know, it was more about, I guess, abstraction and expression and, feeling really interesting and and so did you kind of gravitate towards that 2d side but because you you talked about sculpture and and obviously you do you know a lot of different things now but i don't know what were some of those other i guess informative experiences were there were there other ones i mean obviously there's got to be other ones but <laughs> i finished off with a concentration in printmaking and photography I went to Skidmore College in upstate New York, and I, I didn't do a whole lot of photography there because the photo labs were kind of limited in, 
it just didn't, they didn't have a digital facility really set up and they didn't have color. I mean, this is 1996 or 97, 98. So digital photography wasn't really, nobody had a digital uh, facility set up really at that time. Um, but I, I studied abroad um, at the Glasgow School of Art in Scotland and that was mind-blowing. Uh, you know, it was just the structure of the curriculum was, was so much different. It was so much more self-paced. It was much more like graduate school where we had tutors and we had to schedule individual meetings with them and we had periodic classes with the entire class. But it was kind of like, you know, they would say, okay, here's, you have a, a portrait assignment a self-portrait assignment. We'll see you in three weeks or we'll see you in four weeks. And within those three or four weeks, you work in your studio, you meet with, you make a schedule, a, a meeting with a tutor and they give you feedback. And, you know, art was, it was, um, it was like, it was like night and day from, from the American model of, of education. And it, it just, really lit a fire under me just in terms of making me take, take responsibility for my work. And, you know, it was less of like a step one, step two, step three. And at the end you have a project. It was, no, it was, here's the idea of portraiture. Now go make one of those on your own. Um, so it was a lot of learning, you know, just, um, learning on my own. And I, you know, I learned how to print color photographs pretty much by myself in the dark room. Um, I had some help, but these are traditional photographs too. Cause you, you'd also talked about, you know, and again, this, the shows our age, you know, the, the time when you go to be an undergrad and, and you've got no digital facilities, it sounds absurd. But yeah, had yeah. you previously just kind of worked with, with digital photography and this was like, maybe was this your first experience or was it coming back to it or? No, no I, I didn't actually work digitally until I went back to the States my senior year and they had, they had this real kind of minimal setup. I mean, I, I didn't touch a digital camera until the year 2000. <laughs> when I was living out in California, this place I was working for bought this, this digital camera. I remember it weighed a ton. Uh, but, you yeah, know, I was, I was shooting medium format film and scanning it and then um, using, you know, what, what I was like fo Photoshop 3 or something and messing with the, the color and, and then printing on a, a, a dye sub printer. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, that, that was back in the States. Well, one thing that I wanted to ask before we kind of leave the, the whole experience of being abroad, I mean, was that also something that, did that change the way that you also kind of experienced places? And, you know, you kind of brought it up in the beginning, you know, kind of being raised in a, a place that was almost like this idea of a utopia and then, you know, going to college and interacting with people differently. I mean, was this also obviously like a, like a a crazy experience in that regards or did it change that side of it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I purposefully, you know, when, when we ever, all the, all my fellow art students at Skidmore were choosing where they were going to study abroad, I purposefully wanted some place where nobody else was going so that I could meet new people and just kind of start new, you know, start fresh. It wasn't, I didn't want to like reinvent myself or anything, but I, I, I don't know. I just wanted to have that, have that kind of clean slate. I think part of that is because I went to college with a couple of uh, friends from high school, not, not on purpose, but, um, it just kind of <laughs> happened. It just kind of happened that way. No, it's, it's actually kind of interesting too, because, you know, you, like when I think back and, and again, I don't know if it's just, who knows why I'm thinking about all this stuff too. You're bringing it up. You're bringing it out of me. <laughs> but you know, like I think back to that too. I mean, I wound up, I wound up living with someone who I was friends with, but I didn't even know was going to school, you know, like the year later or something like that. It was like the first day I was there, I was like, oh, it's you. And I think about, you know, how you kind of get exposed to like a group of art students or, or people that are kind of, you know, dealing with these same challenges of, of trying to, trying to make something, you know, out of, out of nothing almost, it seems like, I don't know, you know, you're doing something that nobody cares about aside from this group of people maybe. Yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly what I found in Glasgow. The, the housing for the art school was all filled up. So I got housed way across town 
and I had about a 15, 20 minute walk across town to, to the, to the school of art. I got housed with the university of Glasgow students. So I got to know students who weren't studying art better than some of the students who were studying art. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it really was like being thrown into this foreign urban experience. It was so exciting and terrifying, but it it was really transformative. And not to mention the fact that they had this fabulous film program where, you know, I was going to see these great movies that I'd never seen before, new and old. And, um, and then they had, you know, world-class museums and galleries there where uh, I was seeing work that, um, that contemporary, it was right around the, the kind of the, the YBA, the Young British Artists, blowing up. So, like, I saw, like, Gillian Waring and uh, the, the Chapman Brothers and all this crazy work that, you know, I had never, it was just so far off the charts, for me, my art history experience was really pretty by the book. It didn't really have a whole lot of contemporary art. Seeing Gillian Waring's work, it was kind of like, oh, you can you can be funny and you can have pop music and you can dance and right, you can right. you know have fun and and act like an idiot in front of the camera. It was like merging theater and and music and all the things that I loved into art, but it wasn't this collaborative effort like music and theater are. It was a, a kind of singular effort that she was doing, and that really that really spoke to me. It felt like something that I could do and, and, and that I wanted to do. How did this impact you going back and, and finishing your degree? Uh, I was doing some appropriation and I, I, at, in, at the end of my undergrad, so I think that that's probably... I probably wouldn't have been doing that if I if I hadn't gone to Glasgow. I was appropriating scenes from, you know, iconic scenes from from eighties teen movies like Say Anything and Revenge of the Nerds and stuff like that. Taking iconic scenes and and making uh, woodcut prints out of them. Was that something that was always interesting to you? Like th- those kind of worlds that you kind of get wrapped up in. You know, through TV, you know, I, like I get, I get really obsessed with the dumbest, um, the dumbest <laughs> like knowledge. Like for example, like I'm really into the Halloween series, but okay. just because I like the mythology about why Mike Myers just keeps coming back, and then they, it sucks because they <laughs> change it in the middle of it. But you know, that idea is certainly something that kind of comes up in your head, storytelling, and you know, kind of like playing around with these, you know, these ideas that we have of like people being heroic or you know, having these experiences. I mean, is that something then that you were conscious of in terms of like, I'm going to make work about these, you know, scenes from movies or or whatnot? It was, I think at that point it was, it was stemming from, um, what I saw in my life in trying to get girls (laughs) and what I saw on TV and movies and, and that kind of, the male female relationship and dating and navigating that and just trying to like reconcile those differences and thinking that that's what it was going to be like when I got to be college age or into high school or whatever. And just realizing that, you know, the nerds, the nerds don't really, doesn't really work out that way. (laughs) The nerds don't win at the end. They're still nerds. (laughs) Were they really recognizable, the woodcuts, like in terms of the prints that you made? No, yeah, I didn't pick them, like like the, the scene with like John Cusack holding the boombox. But it was mostly scenes where like a, um, a, of a guy and a girl out on date or, you know, at that moment where it's like, okay, what do you do next? You know, it's like, okay, you say goodnight or do you make a move or it's like that, like that pivotal moment where you go from... Um, casual interaction to, um, something more intimate. I think that's, that's probably what I was looking for in, in those, those scenes. But it's, it sounds like th- those types of narratives that you get through films and movies is something that you were also very interested in. I, I definitely, I, I pay attention a lot to that in terms of, in terms of editing and pacing my own work. It's something that I try to teach my students 
the, the classic kind of narrative arc of a rising action climax and the falling action and, and you know where do you where do you place that climax and the, how do you pace out the the scenes up until the climax and then after it it's it's something that I think you learn from watching a lot of TV and from spending a lot of time in front of your in front of your editor. <laughs> so did you wind up spending like a, a chunk of time in between getting your undergrad and then it looks like you went and did a, a residency before graduate school. Um, but was there like some time off where you just working and making artwork or what, what happened in that, that window there? The kind of the abridged version of, of that is I moved to California. I took a, about a month long road trip hitting a bunch of the national parks that I'd always wanted to see. I did this by myself. I moved to California, and uh, I started a residency at a printmaking studio there called the Kala Institute. Eventually, I started working for a guy who does uh, public art sculpture. I learned a lot about materials and, you know, the public art world, which I'm not really any part of now. It was it was a great job to have, and and it was really kind of fun to to learn about a lot of sculptural materials that I that I hadn't that I didn't have any experience with before, and um, just you know enjoyed the kind of the culture of California for a little while, and and the location of being in the Bay Area, but really the, the most important part of that was was going to all the national parks. It was really kind of the the honeymoon of, of between me and the national parks. I was alone at Bryce, at Zion, Canyonlands. I did this this crazy eleven mile hike by myself in, in June in, in Canyonlands, and uh, you know, in retrospect, that just seems crazy because it was so hot in June in Utah. And uh, actually, ended up getting lost at the end, and it was this kind of I don't know if you could call it an existential experience. I, I didn't even know what that was when I was <laughs> right. 21 or 22, <laughs> but it was, it's, it was really stressful and really exhilarating and exciting at the same time. Landed in, in California for three years and then eventually ended up uh, back on the East coast for, uh, for graduate school. I think when I graduated from undergrad, it was kind of like, finally like a reality, like, Oh, okay. I work at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> like that's my existence. If I want to change that, I got to do something about it. So it's interesting to think about, you know, working working with artists and and kind of I don't know thinking about a, a type of uh, aspect to art making that maybe you don't always really kind of think about when you're when you're a student. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're you're just. I actually worked at the art store, not Hobby Lobby, but it's the the the, the West Coast version of that. And you see all these people who are ten or fifteen years older than you who are still working at the art store. Um, you also see people who are two or three years younger than you who are having gallery shows. And yeah, it's like you're 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 out there and and you're you're in the context of 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 the art world at that point and. With a couple of years of perspective behind me, I was able to kind of stand on a tower and look out and and on on the people around me and, and pick and choose. Okay, I want that career, or I want to strive for that path, or one you know one of those avenues to success was was via the MFA. So, so what was it like then, kind of deciding to go to Syracuse and and kind of getting in, immersed in that? I mean, were you able to kind of take from all these experiences and start putting them more into your work in, in a way that you hadn't before? You know, in retrospect, I applied with such a, a weird portfolio. I had this really strong woodcut, uh, you know, collection of woodcut prints that were based in photographs. And then I had these kind of shitty Richard Mizrak kind of pictures, like bad, like mediocre you know, man versus the environment kind of pictures. And that, that was my, my application to graduate school. I'm sure a bunch of these schools were like, who is this, you know, how does he expect to get into a photo program with this, with this, this portfolio? And I didn't, I didn't get any into any of the photo programs that I wanted to get into except for Syracuse. And they were, that was why they were so appealing is because they looked at that, that portfolio and, and it appealed to them in that I, I wasn't just making pictures. I'm curious, like did that idea of picking apart your personality 
or kind of putting it out there on display, was that something that started then or did that come later? The woodcuts that I was doing in undergrad was kind of the first like look into male insecurity because they were they were based on my difficulty in navigating the dating, you know, the dating world. And, and I was drawing from, I think I mentioned this before, I was drawing from movies, you know, 80s, movies from the 80s, Revenge of the Nerds and Bachelor Party and, and that sort of thing, where, you know, the testosterone is cranked up. Um, Have you ever seen just one of the guys? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but... That's okay. That's, <laughs> this is the kind of world that I guess we both live in. Yeah. That's the one where the, the, the woman tries to... She goes undercover as a, a yeah. high school journalism student from another school to experience what it's like to be a guy. Right, and there's all those kind of crazy locker room scenes. <laughs> yeah. She's in the, the, the locker room of the football. When I started graduate school, I started making video, I guess, pretty early on. The first thing that I that I remember doing, uh, making uh, in terms of video, was a memoir, a short memoir piece that I'd written about these reoccurring dreams of my band teacher from high school. So yeah, that was it was definitely that was the beginning of of kind of looking inward and and, and sense of anxiety and, and insecurity. Yeah, I guess that's that's where that began. And there's kind of like this performative aspect to it. But is that something that when you started doing it, I mean, did it did it feel like you could keep doing it? Because it seems like there'd be so much anxiety to to just kind of say, "Okay, this is this is what I this is what I'm going to do." Well, most of it is just performing for the camera, which is a, a pretty safe environment. Um, the screenings get a little dicey <laughs> when you have to show them to people, but performing for the camera has always been something that I enjoy doing and and feel pretty comfortable doing and. And I think I'm I'm pretty good at it. I wouldn't say I'm a good actor, but I, I I'm able to to do what I want to do, communicate the idea that I want to communicate, you know, in front of the camera. But were you also working in like other disciplines as well, or were you still taking photos and incorporating them into the shows, or was it separate? Or yeah, and I, I've always kind of had this little bit of a double life where I was taking pictures that satisfy this kind of need to work in a more in an observational mode where I'm looking and recording. And then there's that kind of performance side of me where I, where I, I need to be more proactive and, um, you know, writing scripts and, 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 and building contraptions and, um, intervening in the world or, or doing some kind of, you know, yeah, an intervention in the world and, and, um, and, and being more proactive for, for the camera. And, and you know, the camera is, is the witness to that intervention. Without glossing over your, your graduate experience too quickly, was there anything that you, you took from that especially that carried over into what you do now? Yeah, there's a ton of stuff. But, you know, they say, it, well, I went, I went to a three-year program, and they say it takes six years to unlearn what you learned in three years. And I definitely think that's true. You know, I, I still have my, my, my three professors' voices in my head when I'm working, but less so than I did, you know, say four or five years ago. I definitely, I definitely take a lot. I, I'm not sure I can put my finger on exact, exact things, but graduate school was incredibly valuable. If not for anything, just meeting people and, and sharing ideas with my contemporaries and and I was fortunate enough to have professors who were, uh, who I considered contemporaries, who were all you know young and active and excited about making work. You know, I looked up to them in terms of them being more established and more accomplished than I did, but not so much in that they were, you know, old and, <laughs> um, you know, were were phoning it in like a lot of academics do unfortunately so we were just talking about uh your mfa show and you're you were saying that it was a uh, a mixed bag of your personality of, of different bodies of works in that yeah yeah so i had this really kind of traditional photo show with pictures on the wall you know it was my this series that's on my website called homes abandoned homes that i was finding all around the united states and then I did a performance and, and screening. So it was, I just assembled a reel of, of my kind of greatest hits from three years in graduate school. And then I did a, my, my first live 
performance in front of a an audience holding the the TV as my alter ego. The the kind of flesh and blood me, the guy who was standing there holding the TV didn't say anything, but the TV did all the talking and introduced the videos and basically embarrassed me in front of everybody. <laughs> and did you have that interactive kind of quality that your videos have now in terms of like the way that you would you know, react to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's all timed out. It's all heavily rehearsed and timed out and scripted. And, you know, it goes through process of just like any comedy writer would do, you know, you, you see what, what sticks and what doesn't stick. And then you rewrite and what makes people laugh and what doesn't. And then you try to make it funnier. And (laughs) that's, that was the same kind of process that I went through. You know, we've kind of talked about some of these, you know, kind of personal influences on the work. But was kind of art history or or theory or, you know, reading about the way people talked about artwork or, or think about artwork or things that are tangential, was that something that really kind of impacted you or was it always more? Um, I've never really been too much of a, a theory guy. Um, I know that sounds kind of maybe sounds a little dopey to say, but I've always been more influenced by you know, more pop culture references like comedians and, and film and, and television and and social phenomena. Not that's not to say that I don't read. I do, but it's I, I, I enjoy reading fiction and and I guess nonfiction also, but not so much theory. I wonder when I'm looking at these, like how many of them are in the same area or, or something like that. But I mean, does it also make you think about the, the place that you're at? you know, what the history of that place is, or is it kind of more of your experience with this place? It relating to that aspect of your personality that's about, you know, home and, you know, thinking about that narrative, I guess. I took those pictures. I was doing a lot of traveling, like you've mentioned, on these road trips. And I would look for places that had tall grass in front of the house and no car. And it was kind of shocking how many places you could find. They're more prevalent out west you know, on the East Coast and gradually as you get farther out West, it's so, the population is so dense that if somebody abandons their home, somebody else is going to scoop it up because that property is so, so desirable and so valuable. Whereas out West, there's just so much space and somebody abandons that house, it's in the middle of nowhere and there's just aren't enough people to to want to re-inhabit it. So there were a lot of a lot of places out west, you know, like um, the Salton Sea, which is Southern California, but not it's it's Eastern Southern California, Utah, and then there's a bunch in Western New York and Vermont. You're like a, an explorer of the world. <laughs> I, I mean, I love to travel. I wish I, I wish I had more time to do it now. I really think that that's partially why I I call my current series of work when you're out there it's a little bit of a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing you know the sense that you 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 look at the world differently when you're away from your home you know you have a heightened sense of awareness and part of that is due to that it's that you're interested in it and that you want to learn but part of it is due to this kind of sense of survival and you have to be more aware of your surroundings because they're unfamiliar and you need to stay safe. Do you go to places that you feel uncomfortable just with that intention? What What are the types of places that you like to seek out? Are they for kind of reasons like you've got a show and, you, and you're going to take some time to explore this area? Or is it something where you really set out to go and explore a place? I like to travel by myself. Uh, again, I don't get to do it so much anymore, but I, I, it's this, it's a real kind of double-edged sword. It's like, I love traveling by myself because of the clarity that I get. But once I arrive somewhere, it's immediately, I get this immediate feeling, oh, this place is awesome. I want to share it with somebody, you know? So it's, it's really kind of a, a, a bit of a double-edged sword. I, I don't, I don't seek out places that are particularly dangerous. Uh, you know, I do like to, to go on, you know, six, seven, eight mile hikes and, um, if you're not prepared or you make stupid decisions, then then they are potentially dangerous. So how did you wind up where you're at? You know, so we, we were talking about being out in New York. I mean, did you stay out there a while before you, you landed out back west? Well, I did three years in graduate school and then about three years living in Brooklyn. I told myself that I wouldn't move to New York City unless I had a job. And I got a job 
right out of graduate school working at the James Cohan Gallery, which is right in Chelsea, and uh, I was the archivist there. Any 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 artwork that came in or out of the gallery had to be documented. So either I facilitated the photography of that if it was a you know a big piece, or I actually took the pictures myself. And I I took care of all the the files, and that was a really great experience. The, the gallery also manages the estate of Robert Smithson. Um, I really got to learn a lot about Robert Smithson and, and all of his all of his work. I mean, everybody knows Spiral Jetty, but he did a lot of really wonderful, crazy pieces. And then and then just really it taught me a lot about navigating the art world. You learn a lot when you look at the price tag on a Bill Viola video installation and. You see how many editions are left and how many people buy them. <laughs> it's a real, a real good learning experience. Was it something where you're able to kind of continue to work while you're doing that? What what capacity did that take? Because everybody that that especially I know that starts to move to New York, it sounds like they they work for about ninety hours a week. Yeah, I was paying at least two thirds of my income for rent, and I'm. It got to the point where I felt like if you can't live in New York and enjoy New York, then why? you know, why, <laughs> why live there? I mean, I did, I did really enjoy it, but I'm not sure I would move back there unless I had a real kind of comfortable situation and, and I could spend the time to really enjoy the place. I was making work, but it wasn't the quantity that I wanted to be making. The next, the next thing that I did after working there for three years was move to Roswell, New Mexico, which was pretty stark change. It's like going from a bustling, you know, the, the world's metropolis to the middle of nowhere, essentially. Well, and that's gotta be like the best time to do a residency like that too, is right after you've been kind of stuck in a place where there's a lot of art going around and maybe not being able to, to kind of do or spend the time making what you want to make. If you look at my website, there's a piece called My New Studio, Storytelling My New Studio. That is all about the kind of blank canvas syndrome. We moved down there and we moved into this beautiful new house with a huge studio. Nothing like I'd ever experienced before in terms of workspace. It was like, well, shit, now, you know, I got this thing. We did this thing. We're here for a year. And now what? I have some pictures of of my studio as I filled it up, which was really no problem. That's what kind of why I was saying that I, I kind of grow into whatever space I'm given. And it, it ended up being a fabulous year of, of not only making work in the studio, but also traveling around. Um, I made a bunch of pieces that are all on my website. The, the cowboy one, Rio Macho, I wouldn't have been able to make that if we weren't based in roswell and able to you know drive up to monument valley and um if there weren't donkeys (laughs) within walking distance of my studio it presented a lot of kind of visual opportunities and locations and it was definitely changed my work significantly a lot of it seemed to become about these places then too you know so that so that it it became a real experience instead of you know, Teen Wolf or, you know what I mean? Something that's kind of detached. It seems like it becomes like this real place then in a way. Is it something then when you're out there, does it give you ideas? I mean, are you taking notes when you're doing this? Are you taking photos or what kind of experience is it like to be, to be out checking out a national park for the first time and you've got a six hour hike? I would say it's kind of half and half. I went to Roswell knowing that I wanted to do a cowboy piece just knowing that I want to do something about cowboys, but I, I didn't really know how far Monument Valley was from Roswell. It's a really, it's pretty far. It's not like, it's not like you can just go, you know, drive there in a day. That question also makes me think about a more recent piece that I did in 2010 at the Grand Canyon, where I was, I was interested in the difference between, you know, a, a picture of a of an iconic vacation destination versus actually being there. And I was doing all these projects 
in my studio that were just total failures. This is when I was in another residency in Flagstaff, Arizona, at the Museum of Northern Arizona. I was doing all these these projects that were just total flops. The Where I was staying was about an hour's drive from Grand Canyon, so I went there a handful of times, mostly just for pleasure. Uh, also, along the way, there was... It was really a beautiful, you know, beautiful scenic drive. So I would stop and take pictures along the way. I was also stopping at some of these like gift shops, you know, the Native American gift shops and buying postcards of, of the Grand Canyon. The, the combination of the, the failed projects in the studio plus going to the Grand Canyon and being on the ground there and experiencing, um, the, you know, the tourist scene there and just the environment of, on the rim, that was how that... that the piece, um, it's called A Rousing View of Nature's Magnificence. That's how that one was born. All those quotes that you wind up reading, then are they are they lifted from something? Or are they ones that you're kind of trying to rewrite for all of them? It's both. It's, um, it, it, you know, I call it an exercise in superlative. The uh, synonym function in Word was really helpful with that. I would look up a word like magnificent and find all the all the synonyms for that. So some of them are directly taken from the things that are written on the back of the postcard, and then some of them I I write. What was the aspect of just having you know people around you then too, you know where you're normally kind of tucked away in your studio, and now you're kind of out there doing this performance where where people can kind of come up and interact with you. I mean, was that something that was just kind of like a nice pleasure to have and. <laughs> I had no idea what was going to happen. It, you know, it was it was about four years ago that I did it, so I don't remember the exact, you know, the exact evolution of it. But what I would do is I would set up the camera with this beautiful kind of mountain scene in the background, and I would walk out in this snowy field, and I would take pictures with a with a Polaroid camera, and I would pull the Polaroids and I would show them to the camera as I was taking them. And it just it just wasn't working. This is the the project that I was describing as a flop. The pictures just weren't that interesting, and it was taking too much time, and it was just boring. So I thought, well, there's something really close by that's much more iconic, and so why don't I try this similar kind of thing? I just kind of just imagined myself, I would get some kind of funny looks, but I didn't imagine that people would interact with me so that the one guy that comes up and looks looks over my shoulder that that's just one of those kind of happy accidents that I couldn't couldn't have asked more for you know that that guy just makes that video <laughs> did you did you start, have happen to have any conversations with any random strangers about like what you were doing and what that was about no nobody asked me nobody asked me not even the no no rangers even asked me i would have loved to have a conversation about it but but no, nobody asked me. Just because it's weird because, you know, like, and, and I think especially something that's come up, you know, like even within, gosh, I want to say that like the last couple of years is just, you know, how, like how important the image is or even conversations that I have with people about, you know, artwork, you know, is it really, you got to wonder at some point whether people actually go see anything at some point or at least a certain people that will see it in reality, you know, on, on Tumblr or Twitter you know, will they actually see your work in person? Mm-hmm. And it just makes me wonder about that, you know, like, because everybody loves to share pictures and, you know, what what does that say about it? I mean, are you, you're just, are you kind of interested in exploring that loosely or is that something that you're super conscious of? Because I, because again, I think we talked about before, there's a, this kind of like, I think a universality the way to the way that you approach it that that's interesting. I'm definitely I'm very interested in in the difference between being there and experiencing the facsimile. Um, I'm I try to be really careful not to to pass too much judgment because I I do think that there's a lot of value in experiencing something in an image. I mean, I, I make photographs. I love photographs, so I'm obviously not going to downplay that. But um, here's the thing: so you can kind of like paint this this scale, this experience scale, value experience scale. You know, the most cynical person would say, "Okay, looking at it on the internet is the least valuable and the least experiential. The most valuable and the most experiential would be to go to the Grand Canyon and." 
walk down in, into the Grand Canyon. But there's so many variables in between. It's because suppose the guy who's walking down into the Grand Canyon is looking at his iPhone the whole time or arguing with his kid the whole time or thinking about his, his, uh, his stock portfolio the whole time. There's no one way to ex- experience these places. The, the, first t- the first time that I went cross-country, a buddy of mine from college said, don't go to the Grand Canyon. It's packed with tourists. It's boring. It's just a big hole in the ground. So I, I didn't go. I skipped it. He said, you're much better off going to Bryce Canyon. It's really beautiful there. It's much less crowded. And I went to Bryce Canyon, and yeah, it's beautiful. and It's, not, it's less crowded. The next time that I went out, on the road, um, which was maybe a couple years later, I did go to the Grand Canyon, and I was just floored. I mean, I'm speechless. The, the Grand Canyon is, is an amazing, amazing place. It's, there's a reason why people flock to it. Walking into the Grand Canyon, you just feel incredibly small. You, know, you see the striations of, of rock, and it's, it's, just, it's just something that you need to, that, that I really needed to, to experience, to understand. So I, I do kind of, as personally, I feel very strongly about that, but, um, I, I don't, I don't think that I can pass judgment on other people's experiences because there's just too many, too many variables. There are too many, too many other things at play in, in what's going on in your brain. The, the title pokes fun at the Ram Das book, Be Here Now, which is all about being present in the experiences as they happen to you in the moment um, and not thinking about what's going to happen in the future or what happened in the past, but, you know, being very present in the moment. You know, the video is all about being in a beautiful place, but having a screen in front of you and that being the main distraction, but also trying to share it as, as social capital, (laughs) you know, like I, I was there then and, you know, much in the same way that people use Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, they use uh, travel as, as social capital, as a way to demonstrate their worldliness or their sophistication. Right. Well, and that's something that makes it a, a bit more interesting, too, because even that that idea is just so it's not the same experience as going to the Grand Canyon, you know. Mm-hmm. I somehow wound up at Bon Jovi last year, um, <laughs> and there was this guy that was taking video of every song, you know. But there, there might be a lot of things that people don't actually ever look at. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And certainly they don't have that kind of experience. Um, and so again, maybe if I've said it too many times, I mean that's one of the things that's so compelling about, you know, what you do then because you kind of really, you know, put yourself in that that mode, you know. But it's also kind of very open. There's so much. The accumulation of images and video and music that's happening, you know, we're, we're going to have to have, I mean, space is going to become an issue. Storage space, it already is an issue on the personal level. So, you know, Google's going to have to open up a whole nother mega warehouse. I don't even know if you've seen those pictures of their, the insides of their mainframe, but they're going to have to, you know, everybody's going to have to expand. The irony is that nobody ever looks back at that stuff. So it makes me think, what's the point? I mean, I I know the point. I I can think of several points, and and I don't exclude myself from from making you know taking those snapshots. I'm as guilty as anybody else. I do question myself. You know, am I going to look at this again? No, probably not. Am I going to still take the picture? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not that guy at the at the Bon Jovi concert recording every song. I mean, that's different because, well, first of all, it takes effort. I mean, you have to hold your arm up (laughs) and who wants to do that during a, during a a concert. And it distracts you from, from watching the actual show, which presumably that's why you're there. Um, And again, you know, you look at this concert footage that's on YouTube. It's always so shitty. Who watches that? It always winds up being very disappointing. Yeah. So these photographs that you've been taking as well, are they something that you're that you're just consciously kind of walking around with or are you just kind of exploring and then if something strikes you to try to make a photograph about it? It has to be fairly premeditated because most of that stuff is in a 
natural history museums or zoos or those kind of settings. So it's not the kind of thing that I just happen upon randomly. So yeah, I do, I do kind of set out to, to get those pictures. It kind of plays up that artifice, you know, in a way that, (laughs) but you know, like in, in the video that it becomes very much directly about that, you know, you're going to sit in your, your home and then turn it into a Western. Even like one of the first ones that I was writing about this uh, image called a swamp corner, Mm-hmm. It's photographed in a way that you can kind of see it as being artificial, but then at the same time, there's this aspect of it kind of looking like something that's real. Mm. There's another one called Shrub. And again, I don't know if this is something that's staged, but it looks like a little landscape that, yeah. you yeah. know, it's like found in a corner of like a, or on a building or something, maybe in an alleyway somewhere. Yeah. So is that stuff, is that stuff that then you'll also kind of create models for, or is that... Yeah, no, everything, everything is, is just found and, but, but I, I like the way you're responding to them because I, I, I do take effort to, to kind of, to confuse the sense of scale or sense of space. Like that one with, with shrub, this, the shrub is like, you know, maybe you could hold it in your hand. It's tiny. It's in some, some kind of broken down diorama that I found, uh, in Mississippi at a, at a um, museum. But yeah, that that's that's something that I that I that I look for in cropping and uh, you know recontextualizing objects and decontextualizing objects and kind of confusing the viewer. I, I had a, a show at, at the Houston Center for Photography, and there was a a woman that came up to um to to look at one of the pictures, and she was like, "What am I looking at?" And I said, "Well." You know, there's a magazine rack here, and this is a painting of a bird, and this is a log, you know. And she's like, well, what's, is it all a painting? And it was really difficult to try to, to explain to her um, what was going on. And, I mean, that I, I kind of like that, that people don't really know what they're looking at. And it, the pictures kind of go back and forth between being very flat and being dimensional, and you can't really tell what is what's actually there and what might be a window or what might be a painting or, you know, where the depth is. One of the other things that maybe we could talk about too is this one, uh, Surfside one, which is just a, what looks like the video of the ocean playing on a TV in front of the the very ocean and like where it's located. Is that, is that the case or is that? No, that's it. That's it. That's a TV in front of the ocean and what you see on the TV is exactly what's behind the TV. It's playing off a lot of these similar ideas that we've been talking about, the facsimile versus versus the, the real thing. And it kind of a similar thing that we were talking about with the Bon Jovi concert. I went to see um, John Stewart and The Daily Show, taping The Daily Show in New York. And they have the monitors up there that show you exactly what the people at home are going to see on TV. But also if you kind of just cast your eyes down a little bit, you can actually see John Stewart sitting there in front of you. And it's very exciting, but, uh, but your, your eyes drift up to that monitor, you know, frequently, I think because it's for a bunch of different reasons. One, because that's what you're familiar with. The one that's a little bit farther away is, you know, it's, it's almost too real, you know, it's, it's not contained. It's not processed. It's not mediated. It's, it's more unpredictable. It's not. Uh, it's, it's less familiar than than the TV version. Plus, experiencing uh, Texas beach culture, <laughs> which is which is really different from East Coast beach culture, led me to that that piece. There's a there's a town in Texas called Surfside. It's south of Galveston Island, and people frequently ride there. They drive right on the beach, and park their trucks on the beach and unload all assortments of stuff, you know, uh, barbecues and fishing gear and, and all kinds of stuff. And that was, that was a real shock to me that people would, well, first of all, that, that, that the beaches are empty enough that you could drive a car on them. <laughs> I mean, in, in the East coast, the beaches are so packed. You, you can barely even find a place to put your, your towel down. It reminds me, I went to a drive-in recently. This family had set like this whole like home entertainment center practically <laughs> of sound in front of their cuz like the little speakers weren't good a good enough experience mm-hmm. but it it's weird because it makes me think that like then yeah so when I'm in that experience I want to try to 
I wonder, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of humbled to the point that I kind of am thinking like, how can I do something with this? Yeah. I, I mean, I've always been a, a, a pretty curious person. It reminds me of a couple of things that, that, uh, teachers have said to me when I was an undergrad, there was a, a ceramics professor that said he was advocating for a liberal arts education. And he basically said, how can you make art about stuff if you don't know about stuff? It's kind of a dumbed down way of of saying, well, yeah, you should, you definitely should learn about literature and math and science, and that's what it's what is going to feed your art. And then in graduate school, one of my professors was pretty frustrated with the lack of class response to one of his questions. We, you know, we watched a video, and he was he was just kind of frustrated that nobody was talking, and he he said, you know, you're going to have a really long life. And you might think about having some thoughts now and then because otherwise it's going to be a pretty boring life. I wish I knew it, could remember exactly what he said, but he was essentially saying like, you know, turn your brain on. Life is so much more interesting if you, if you turn your brain on and you seek things out and you're curious about stuff, you know, and that's, it doesn't have to be, you know, Lacan. It can be, it can be Louis C.K. and you know Grand Theft Auto, but as long as long as you are curious about something and passionate about it. In this other piece, um, hyper democratic landscapes, the installations, they kind of slowly change into other landscapes, and then you know interact with other videos. Are you you know actively collaging more of these together and and kind of playing around with that visual aspect of it? in a way that was different than the more performative aspect of the videos before? So this piece, Hyper Democratic Landscape, is, is a, it's a three-channel video installation. Each channel is a collection of images that I appropriate from Flickr. And the way that I find the images is I use very specific tagged searches. So for the, the channel on the far left, I search for Barren Landscape, rugged landscape and harsh landscape. And I took all those photographs and um, I made HDRs out of them. If you're familiar with HDR technology, that's high dynamic range, which is different from the title of my piece, which is hyper democratic landscape. It's kind of a, a, a little bit of a tongue in cheek play on that. So basically high dynamic range, what it does is it takes three different versions of the same scene and it sandwiches those three different versions. One version is an exposure for the shadows. One is an exposure for the midtones, and one is an exposure for the highlights. And it sandwiches those three images, and you get this high dynamic range. You get you get more of a dynamic range than you would if you just took one photograph. There's also a, a tool in Photoshop that does that same thing, that HDR function. What what Photoshop expects you to do is use three images of the same scene. But what I did was I used between two and seven images of different scenes. Photoshop takes those images and it's trying to build one composite image with a high dynamic range out of those four, you know, between three and eight disparate images. And you start to get these really kind of wacky colors and multiple horizon lines and you know in some of them you get two or three suns that they start to they start to get surreal and then i took those those images and i made essentially is what's a, a slideshow so each of those hdr images fade into one another slowly so there's the three channels there's harsh barren rugged on the left and the middle channel is biggest, tallest, highest. So I searched, again, on, on Flickr, I searched for biggest landscape, tallest landscape, highest landscape. And then the one on the far right is um, oh, it's Sublime Heavenly Inspired. So what what's currently, um, you know, firing your cylinders for a car analogy, I guess? Right now I'm working on something else, Grand Canyon related, That that's really fresh. It's really half-baked. Um, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm appropriating a bunch of vacation videos from the internet, from YouTube, family vacations, 
that people have taken to the Grand Canyon and I'm looking for commonalities in the way that people use their camera at the Grand Canyon. And it wasn't something that I set out to do. I kind of just thought, oh, maybe I'll approach this uh, a project for the Grand Canyon in a similar way that I approached other projects in the past. But what I realized really quickly was the way that people use their camera at the Grand Canyon is really, it's really pretty similar. It's, you know, the pans and the zooms are, are really, it's like everybody read the same uh, shot list right, right. <laughs> before they went there. So I'm, I'm working with that material and that's hopefully going to be a, a, like a multi-screen installation. Could you tell us, you know, a little bit about what this show you have coming up in May is about? And Sure. It's at Art Space in New Haven, Connecticut, and I'm in the project space. The the, the project that I'm going to show there is this, this hyper-democratic landscapes, and um, it's a three-channel installation. And it's a similar thing that I, uh, back in 2012, but in this iteration of it, it's it's not going to be projected. It's going to be on flat screen monitors. And there's also going to be a sound component, which is brand new. And so I'm excited to to kind of debut the sound component. The, the sound component was assembled in a pretty similar way to the to the visuals where I did these kind of targeted searches for for sound files using those the same tags that I did for the visuals. So sublime, heavenly, inspired, patched together a soundtrack. Kind of a I didn't want it to be too. Uh, distracting. I, I want it to be more of like a texture, kind of like a background texture. So there's there's very few sounds in there that are recognizable. There's a lot of kind of drone sounds. And there's a few exceptions. If you listen real closely, you'll hear some of the the opening to a Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> um, but that's uh, that component of kind of looking for specific terms and then kind of sandwiching them. I like the idea of incorporating sound as a way to to do that as well. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, and and I, I'd like to do something again. You, you can't layer too much because it just ends up sounding, it just ends up sounding too messy, it, at least in this context. But, but it was real, it was, it was a lot of fun to, to look, look for this stuff. But is there anything that you want to bring up specifically that I can, we can still throw in there? I'm in a, another show um, at Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania. I have three new videos that are going to screen there. And I don't know when the podcast is going to drop, but I'm also in a screening at Cabinet Magazine um, on May 8th with a bunch of Skowhegan alumni. So that should be a pretty fun screening. Well, thanks again, David, for, for coming on and talking to me. Again, it's been really interesting to kind of get a glimpse into your studio practice. Again, I'd encourage everyone to go check out your website. You also have a, a photo blog as well. I did just kind of give my website a facelift. So there's some new stuff on there. And yeah, the photo blog is right is right on the, the website. So it's not a separate entity. It's right on the website. And there's always something to look out for, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much for uh, getting this worked out for the second time. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks once again to David Pollitzer for coming on and speaking with me. You can check out his website, davidology.com, again in this very blog post. And be sure to check out his exhibition, Hyper Democratic Landscapes, that opens May 10th at Art Space in New Haven, Connecticut. Since you're visiting David's website, you might as well check out mine, davidlinaway.com. I have a bunch of new landscape paintings. My work deals with landscape and architecture, and you can check it all out at davidlinaway.com, so please do that. Once again, a big reminder this time of year is to apply to the 2014 Studio Break competition. Of course, if you know any artists that would be interested in applying or if you yourself are interested, please do. Once again, national and international artists can apply. You can find out full rules at studiobreak.com on our competition page. Our juror this year is Richard Holland from the Bad at Sports podcast based out of Chicago. They have contributors everywhere around the globe and cover contemporary art pretty thoroughly, so... It's a great level of exposure and a great juror, so we're excited to have him. Once again, we're going to be giving away nine spots on Studio Break, so three artists from three different categories. 
Once again, those categories are BA, BFA, MA, MFA, and professional artists. We're also excited to hand out three solo exhibitions this year for three different artists from three of those categories. So once again, if you want to have a show, we are going to be working with Jan Brandt Gallery, the Peoria Art Guild, and Demo Project in Illinois. So great way to get your work out there and some actual spaces, so please apply. As always, please take the time to check out some of the other interviews on studiobreak.com. You can easily access them through the archive feature on the left sidebar. You can also subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, so it's a great way to stay up to date with what's come out. So please do that. Again, if you've been listening for a while, we always appreciate some comments and some feedback as it generally helps those in iTunes who are podcast addicts find new podcasts to listen to. Studio Break is available in a variety of social media, so please like our Facebook page and stay up to date there. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, and you can also follow our Tumblr page, that's Studio-Break. So please reach out in all of those places. Say hello. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast, and we'll talk to you real soon.